0: Thanks Jordan. Yeah, and I give my kudos to you guys too. That's a lot of years of service represented there and it's all part of just of restoring all things to God, one person, one place at a time. And I know I want to touched a lot of individuals, my children included. So, hey, kudos to a couple of people. Uh I saw Ryan Colmeyer Meyer made the front page of the paper this week. So, Ryan'll be here probably second service, but it was cool to see that also, I want to, I have a flower here, this represents the National Memorial of Fallen Educators. Is that, did I say it correctly, Carol? Carol Strickland. Uh, I got to participate this week in the, the rededication of that memorial, and wow, that was such a humbling experience, and um, if you've never been over there by the one-room schoolhouse at ESU just off Merchant, you ought to go see this memorial. It's, it's really well done and a cool space, and um, it, pe- educators who've been killed while in their duty of educating, a lot of them in the last few years, I think, their names are on there. Families come to that memorial as their, their loved ones are dedicated, and it was uh, a fellow from Sandy Hook was there from Connecticut seven years after the fact. And I was just going to say to you, Carol, because kingdom work… This, this God's desire to restore all things, it's things like taking places like a grassy field, creating a memorial, I mean, because you were behind it, right? You were the driving force, creating a memorial where people are honored and families can come, and, and that's part of healing, because I saw that firsthand, um, so I just wanted to honor you because that's, to me, that's all part of restoring all things back to God, one person and one place at a time, and you did that with a place, and that is affecting people. And even just that one family that shared of a lost loved one, how Jesus was so obvious in what they were sharing, their faith was obvious in it, and even in that space that you helped create, that uh, that Jesus was, was present there. So, anyways, that's just a cool thing. So... All of our work is kingdom work, when it's done for His fame, and it's to be restoring all things t- back to Him, one place, one person at a time. So, all right, continuing in Proverbs, which is the fine art of living well. Um, you remember the, um, the, it's about wisdom, which means skillful living. Um, we are reading through it this summer, so if we still have the reading things in the back at the Welcome Center. If you are not doing that, I encourage you to do it. We're getting close to chapter 10. Hang in there. It, we're still in the 10 sayings of a father to a son and the four poems of Lady Wisdom, and the, you're going to really start chugging along at a good pace once we hit chapter 10, so keep, keep in with that. Um, I was going to say, Tim Keller says that Proverbs are like hard candy, and I really like this. Um, the Bible talks about the Word of God as bread, it talks about it as milk, it talks about it as meat. And Tim Keller says Proverbs are the candy, the hard candy of the Bible. By the way, last night I just was looking up hard candy online, and what it brought up was a bunch of the stuff my dad always got at Christmas time. Any of you my generation or I, do they still do this at Christmas? But this is what came up, so it was a good memory for me. But that. That hard candy it 's something you put in your mouth, you suck on it, you roll it around. well, when I was a kid i didn 't you know it was always a but you 're supposed to put it in your mouth, suck on it, roll it around, and that 's really how the proverbs are intended they 're intended to reflect upon, so that 's why i 'm challenging you every day. pick one proverb in your reading, and that day reflect on it and apply it to your life and Somebody even told me that somebody this week told me they 've read the proverbs before, but it was always just reading through you know. And they said they would never picked one out and stopped and rolled it around, and so really that's the intent. Also I think Proverbs, yeah, oh there, that's modern hard candy for the the rest of us. I did grow up with this stuff too, I'm not that old, so. Uh, Proverbs to me are also like vitamins, it's like something you can take every day that gives you all the necessary things you need for life. You know, vitamins A, C, D, E, whatever. I mean, the Proverbs talk about everything, leadership, relationships, our words. So, to, to me, it's like taking a vitamin. Uh, like those things we give our kids, I don't know. We, I didn't grow up, I mean, we had these as kids. I, my family didn't do them, my, all my friends did, and I was jealous, but I found out from Ariel there was no reason to be jealous, because I guess they taste horrible, is that right? We gave our kids, they kind of looked more like this, these, when they were little. They hated them because uh, of the iron, I'm told. And then, what's so a really funny story, and she's given me permission. So we were changing out a table. We had an old table, and we were changing out a table. And when we moved the old table, and we had carpet in that house, right? Carpet in the dining room, which is, n- never put carpet. I didn't do that. It was just came that way. And it was a rental, so I couldn't rip it out. We moved the table, and under stuck under the legs were dozens of vitamins that were never taken. Ariel's our child who puts things places. That's what she said last night. I want to tell you something. When you see one of these vitamins that has sat for a, three years somewhere, I'm, I'm scared. Those are scary things to put in children's bodies, I think. Those things looked uh, so fascinating. Um, and for those of you who are shocked that we gave our children a form of Flintose vitamins, I'm sorry that we didn't give them Shockley or something. So, now you know that I'm not a good, we were not good parents. So, Okay, Proverbs, this, this today I want to do one of my favorite, to me it's like a vitamin, this is something to really, a hard piece of candy to suck on. This is in my top ten, and I'd like you to, could we do just a quick stand and read this together? It'll be about one minute, that's all. But it's Proverbs fourteen four. and so would you read it with me? Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, but from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. And this is the Word of God. And you may be seated. Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty, but from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Um, NLT, an empty stable stays clean, but no income comes from an empty stable. No cattle, no crops. A good harvest requires a strong ox for the plow. The New American Standard, where there where no oxen are, the manger's clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Or without any oxen to pull the plow, your barn will be empty, but with them will, it will be full of grain. Um, this idea of, of having a clean stable or a clean barn if you don't have oxen. Um, let me ask, maybe some of the kids here can answer, I mean anybody, but what might a barn be like if you've got cattle that live in it, and you have to care for it. What might be some of the sights, the sounds, the smells that would be in a barn that houses cattle? Any any thoughts, any creative ideas? Anybody ever grown up, seen a farm before? What would be in a... Manure. A manure. Okay, I'm going to talk... That person I'm going to talk about in a little bit when I talk about negativity. I mean, immediately, (laughs) manure... No, it's the first thing I thought of, okay? Right. I mean, that's the big one, right? Manure, smell, there's flies, right? Uh, So there's the manure thing. I was ready for it right there. That's what he's doing. Um, Look at this. I didn't even know this. I was looking online. They've got these cool things. Like, wouldn't that be great 100 years ago if they'd had that in a barn, like a little electronic, you know? Maybe my son's doing drones. Maybe they have drone things that will do that with manure. But in in the not-too-distant past... Um, draft animals were absolutely vital to farming and to reaping a harvest and by the way did you know that for every person living in Kansas there are three head of cattle do you guys know that? I mean it's vital to our economy it's necessary to our state's economy and so cattle are so essential um, but it just depends on your perspective about all of this whether the manure is a positive or a negative Uh, we're going to talk more about perspective in a minute Pat and I lived in Virginia for four years while I did my master's degree. I remember when we came back into Kansas and we're driving across the state towards Emporia. First time I smelled a fo- feedlot in four years, man, it was like tiptoeing through the tulips. I was loving that smell. I hadn't smelled it in a long time. You get over that pretty quick. It wasn't long before I got over that, but that was my initial reaction I was like, man, I, we got We stopped, pulled over. I haven't smelled this in a long time. Uh, okay, sorry. Um, Having cattle means you have to care for them, clean up after them, be responsible for them. I sound a lot like my mother talking to us when we want new pets, but that's, that's all true for the children that are here. You do have to take care of them. So here's the point, I think, of this proverb. Because um, in an agricultural setting, a clean stall would be an empty stall, less than ideal, right? But with a full stable comes a mess. There must be a willingness for us to accept a mess, to accept discomfort, to accept the inconvenience that's the price of any blessing. Um, you know, what we all desire is a neat and tidy life, right? Um, but we live in a broken world where nothing works as fully as it should. So the reality is is that a productive life, a blessing, any blessing in life will bring with it will have with it some sort of a mess. In a fallen world, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Let me do some modern equivalents of this proverb. Can I do that? How about this one? Where there's no computer, there are no glitches or crashes, but from the power of the computer comes great productivity. Or how about this one? Where there are no toddlers, the diaper pail is empty, but from the presence of children comes countless hours of joy and unspeakable, uh, countless hours of unspeakable joy. Where there's no garden, there are no weeds to pull, no pesky rabbits to trap, but from the existence of those beds come lots of black-eyed peas and okra. Hmm. Or how about this? Where there are no trees, there are no leaves to rake, but from the presence of those trees comes much beauty and in the summer shade and lower cooling bills. Two more. Where there's a dog, there's full fur all over the house and chewed up furniture, but From the loyal companionship of a canine comes great joy. Or where there's a cat, there's the presence of this self-serving, indulgent creature that thinks it's the center of the universe, (laughs) king of the house. That's it. I mean, enough said. (laughs) Okay. I have a cat if you're a cat person, so I understand. But that's true. I, I don't know. A lot of mess. Is there much? Okay. So, this proverb, what it speaks to is it speaks to contentment. In our broken world, everything comes with some manure in the barn, everything. Everything's a mixed bag. It, it just is what it is. And we all find ourselves in seasons, in life situations, in places, in jobs, which we're not happy and which we're discontent. But I think the author of Proverbs is reminding us, God through him, that it's all a matter of perspective. Everything is perspective. Everything is focus. We can either focus on the manure or on the harvest, on the stuff or the blessing. So, I was thinking about that this week. Why is it hard to keep our focus on the blessing, on the good thing of God's gift? Why is it so easy to focus on the manure? And I was looking through the Proverbs and ran into um, Proverbs twenty-seven twenty, which says, Death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. The NLT, human desires never satisfied. The CEV, death and the grave are never satisfied. Neither are humans. I think we find contentment's hard because as fallen, broken people we're never satisfied. And this really goes back to Genesis 3, where the woman was convinced by the serpent when he was tempting her. And he was tempting her at a point of desire, by the way, And she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food. Man, it looked delicious. Its fruit looked delightful, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So again, Satan's point of temptation was at the point of desire. And since that time, since that time, we are fallen, and our desires are insatiable. That's become very broken in us. And I wish I could spend more time in Genesis, but I can't, but... Since this time, we have been be- prim- we've become primarily consumers. We're created to consume, we need food, we need things, but we have become primarily consumers. And modern Western culture with all of its affluence, all of the goods and services, virtually anything we want at the touch of the button, order anything off the phone now in an instant, it's exacerbated this desire to unendingly consume. We live in a culture where people are told they can have anything and everything. We're told to fulfill our desires, and I think it's just made this even worse in our culture. There's a lot being written and said about this these days. And I mean, the truth be told, this consumerism has invaded the community of Jesus. We're tempted by it, like everyone else in our culture. We want what we want, when we want it, the way we want it. Marketing, which is a part of consumer culture, the whole point of marketing is to create in us discontent an unhappiness with what we have. It's designed to make us the opposite of content. So, I think we live in a hard age to live in with regards to having a spirit of joy and gratitude and contentment. So, I think this reality of that Proverbs 2720 is really multiplied that our just desire is so insatiable, I think, just always wanting more. And I think contentment is also hard, not just because of the consumerism, but I think it's hard for two kinds of people in particular. First are those, uh, so there's the insatiable desire. The first are those who struggle with a negative critical spirit. Uh, It's like what I said last week, it's part of our shadow side of some people. It's part of their dark bent, perhaps learned at the feet of parents. Perhaps it's just been a generational sin passed on for three or four generations, Before I say more about a negative spirit, is it wrong to be negative about negativity? Is that, like, is that, would I be a hypocrite if I was negative? I'm going to, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be negative about it. Um, It's a person who struggles with a negative spirit. They're generally pessimistic. They see the flaws and the negative and everything. Um, They just have this need to frequently critique or put down most everything. I mean, we know, we all know people like this, right? They're called the Debbie Downer. Is there any Debbies here, by the way? Anybody here named Debbie? I hope not. Okay, we're good. Debbie Downer, or I thought, I got to get a guy's name in there. Demarcus, how about that? We don't have any Demarcuses. I didn't think we did. Demarcus Downer. Um, But when they remark or comment or give an assessment of anything, more often not the first words out of their mouth is a negative critique. The launch of the first steamship on the Hudson River in the 1800s, a gentleman kept saying, They'll never get her going. Never get her going. But they did. The steamship belched, moved out from the dock, started going down the river, and immediately the same man said, They'll never get her stopped. Never get her stopped. Okay? Right? We know, and we all have this to a degree, but there are people that really wrestle with a negative spirit. And it's harder for those people to find contentment because the focus is always on the manure. There's another kind of person. This one, uh, sometimes it's harder to, to, to see in yourself. The second kind of person I think who struggles with contentment are idealists. Idealism's a good thing, but it's a good thing with a very long, dark shadow. Idealists who haven't learned to curb their idealism with a good dose of realism usually have either super high standards or unrealistic expectations. Full-blown idealists are rarely, rarely satisfied with anything they encounter. Things are never good enough. Trust me, I know all about this firsthand because I'm a recovering idealist. Charles Swindoll wrote about this in his book *Growing Strong: The Seasons of Life*. He calls it the disease of carrying the disease-carrying insect of expectations, because idealists have super-high expectations of everything. What causes you to experience disappointment? Someone or something has failed to fulfill your expectations, right? You had it all set up in your mind the way a certain situation would work out, the way a certain person was going to respond, but it never materialized. Your wish fell flat and hard against stone-cold reality. Your desire dissolved into an empty, unfulfilled dream. We erect mental images which are either unrealistic, unfair, or biased. And these phantom images because become our inner focus rigidly and traditionally maintained leaving no room for flexibility. We set in mental concrete the way things must go, and when they don't, we either tumble or we grumble, or both. The result is tragic. As our radius of toleration is reduced, our willingness to accept others' imperfections or less-than-ideal circumstances is short-circuited. The chain of obligation, built with the links of expectation, binds us in the dungeon of disappointment. So for idealists, I want to teach you this uh, equation that I learned from Prager University, of video, that's an excellent video, by the way. U equals I minus R. That unhappiness, Your level of unhappiness in life, discontentment, is equivalent to your images, all the images of perfection and high standards that everything has to attain to, minus what reality is. And the less reality fits your standards, the less unhappy you'll be. So the, the idea is is to learn to tame our images of what everything should be like and to let them tone down to more what reality is. And this affects churches. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote an amazing little book called Life Together, said this, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even when there's no rich experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. If on the contrary, we keep complaining that everything is paltry and petty, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow. So, negativity, idealism, those two things, I think, take that desire, and then they they ramp it up, they pour fuel with consumerism, and they just create higher levels of of discontentment. So, if you're here and you fall under one of these categories, or both, which is a deadly combination, I want you to encourage you to take this proverb to heart, that cattle and the blessing of cattle always come with manure, but the focus ought to be on the cattle. Now, there's kind of, to me, a next step to this. Because our discontent, so we have these desires, and we're not happy with things, and inevitably, as Jesus says in Matthew 12:34, where he says, "The out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks." Our discontentment in here will make it out in our words. And Proverbs says that the tongue has the power of life, but it also has the power of death. And when it's coming out of discontent, which of these do you think, which power does it hold? Yeah, not, not life, but death. Our discontent, heightened by our consumer culture, fueled by negativity and idolism, it will come out in our attitudes and our words. We all know uh, that misery loves company. It's so hard to keep your discontent to yourself. And so we end up spreading our discontent, our negativity to others through our words and frequently running down the people around us, pulling them down into that. Um, I, Proverbs 10, 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. A few verses later, it says, but the mouth of the fool invites ruin. And that's what our words do. They will drag um, people down into your discontentment and bring them with you. Many times, this takes the form of gossip. Proverbs 18:8 8 says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. I like the NLT, they're like dainty morsels that sink deep into one's heart. Or the CV, there is nothing so delicious as a taste of gossip, it melts in your mouth. And so what we do is we drag others into our discontent, speaking negatively of people or places, casting those things we're not happy with in a negative light, hurting the reputation of others by tainting people's opinions of them. And that's not good, right? We all know that. That is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. It undermines community. Many times, gossip's not enough. As fun it is to speak ill of others or of things to others, many times it comes out in the fact, in the way that we go directly to the person or the group, the source of our discontent, and we give voice to them and dump on them our unhappiness. And if it comes from a heart that's unsatisfied and discontent, from a negative or ideal spirit, it rarely fixes the issue, but only causes harm to the receiver. And Proverbs eleven twelve speaks to this. He who belittles and denounces his neighbor lacks sense, lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps quiet. That Hebrew word behind belittles and denounces, it's one word, but it, they had to give it several. It's a really strong word. One commentator said, that the Word connotes an inner attitude of superiority that needs to make judgments for real or imagined flaws, and then it has to give voice to those judgments. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That kind of person lacks sense, This proverb says. And I'm not saying that all um, of our… if we do have a complaint or a recommendation to somebody, it all comes from this, I'm not saying that, but I think many of our voice discontent and complaints fit this word. And that's why I like the Contemporary English Version's translation of this. It's stupid, I mean, that's this translation, that's not me, all right? It is stupid to say bad things to or about your neighbor. If you're sensible, you'll keep quiet. After reading Proverbs multiple times, I am more and more convinced of the wisdom of that old great American philosopher and theologian, Thumper, who said, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. By the way, he has really bad grammar. (laughs) Do you like my negativity? Do you like that? That was really good. (laughs) Sorry. Movies just run in my head all the time about things like this. All right, so, from an insatiable desire, negative idealistic spirit fuels that, and then it comes out in negative words. And then finally, it moves frequently to conflict, trouble. So that's why Proverbs 28, 25 says that a greedy man stirs up dissension. And literally in the Hebrew, it's a wide open throat. That's why the message says a grasping person. It's a person with an insatiable desire for more, okay? That consumerism. And it stirs up dissension, conflict. It provokes conflict. I just love the different words translation use this. Stirring up, provoking, strife, fighting, trouble, conflict. That when those words, those negative words come out, either in gossip or to the person, that it's almost inevitable that conflict is what results. That's why James says in chapter 4, verse 1 to 2, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the extreme desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So what's the remedy for this? Interestingly, if I go back to the second half of that proverb that we just read, the remedy is actually there. A greedy man stirs up dissension, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Trust is the remedy for discontent. A trust in the goodness of God, a trust that if He allows anything in your life, or if there's any manure attached to anything, that that is for your good. Because Romans 8.28 says, He causes all things to work for your good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And if you trust Him, you can accept the manure and focus on the harvest instead of on that. But if you don't trust Him, if you really don't trust that He's at work in your life for your good, the focus is so easily always going to go to the negative thing. Interesting, last semester in our life group, we did the book, Respectable Sins. This principle kept coming up over and over and over with the respectable sins. That if you don't really ultimately trust God and His goodness in your life, and that even in the manure of your life, He is working that to make you like Himself. If you don't trust that, you're going to get negative about it. And that, that concept just kept coming up over and over. So, now let me say, this doesn't mean, I'm not, here's not what I'm saying. All of us, our initial reaction to manure is... I mean, you turn your head, I mean, literally, you smell it, and you kind of turn your head, right? So, we're, of course, we're human. I know that. God knows that. Your initial reaction to manure in your life is going to be a not liking it and a discontent. So, I'm not saying that initial reaction. It's what do you do with it after the initial reaction? And one who trusts in God and His sovereign goodness intentionally cho- chooses after that initial reaction to focus not on the dirty barn, that the ox leaves behind, but on the rich harvest that comes from his presence. So, trust is the remedy. Where there are no oxen in the barn, the manger is empty, but from the strength of an oxen comes an abundant harvest. So, this proverb is calling us to choose contentment by focusing on the good, on the blessing, not on the manure, that naturally accompanies everything, everything, in a broken world Helen Keller said keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see the shadow isn't that good keep your face to the sunshine you cannot see the shadow if you had been in our home a long time ago in our kitchen I used to put little things sayings on the refrigerator you would have seen this one as you go through life make this your goal look at the donut not at the hole isn't that good Jordan that's a Walmart donut by the way man that's tasty the good life is the ability the ability to live skillfully. The fine art of living well is marked by contentment. It's marked by contentment. So, I just have a question, just to everybody think for a minute, what's the, what's the thing in your life right now that's creating discontentment? What's the place? What's the perso- person? What's the situation? What's the manure generating that discontent? I'm sure we've all got things, multiple, but what's the main one? And if you took that main thing, I want to challenge you this week to put this into practice and to put that thing, that person, that place, that situation in perspective, and to look for the blessing in the person, the place, the situation, to ask who or what is the ox and what are the blessings that come from that ox? You struggle with a negative spirit or an idealistic spirit, I really challenge you to see God's help in reorienting your thinking away from negativism and idealism. They only just feed that discontent. And one thing I find helpful is the person to give voice to your discontent when you have it is to God. Last summer I preached on Lamentations. You can go back and find it on the website and it talks about how I take before God my discontent, my hurt, my pain and I work it through with Him and how God will always reorient me to a place of contentment and seeing His goodness in all of that. And so that's what I want to point you to. All right, I want to uh, switch gears because we're going to do the Lord's table today. And I want to read a quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. In his booklet, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, speaking of contentment and Jesus' death for us, His sacrifice, His giving all for us. Here's what He says. Though I cannot know what your afflictions are, yet I know what your mercies are. I know they are so great that I'm sure there can be no afflictions in this world as great as the mercies you have. There are no afflictions as great as the mercies you have. If it were only this one mercy, that you have grace and salvation continue to you this day. There is nothing greater than that grace. Set any affliction beside this mercy of my eternal salvation and new life and the Holy Spirit, right? Set any affliction beside this mercy and see which would weigh heaviest. This is certainly greater. This is greater than any affliction. Would you not agree? You were a poor beggar and God has, as it were, taken you into his great family. And if the Lord has been pleased to raise you higher, now will you be discontented because you have not everything that you desire? Boy, doesn't that really hit you here. If I have eternal life through His death, doesn't everything else pale in comparison to that? And to have a discontent spirit focused on the manure, when I've got eternal life, I've gotten things out of perspective, right? So can we use this time? I want to use this time to to focus, to refocus. Can we do that? To reframe everything in our life in light of Jesus' death? In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. because whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And shouldn't the little discontent things in our life just kind of fall away in light of everything He went through and He gave to bring us into His family? So, what we're going to do is I'm going to come down. We're going to have some people at each table, and we're just going to just invite you when you're ready to come on up and take the Lord's table. And I encourage you to come up with that Whatever that source of discontentment is in your life, ready to lay that down at the feet of the cross and to, to focus on Him and all the, the blessings He's given us. So, those that are helping could come up. If this were all we had, just this, this is
1: enough. Is it not?
0: Yep. This is enough. So let us live with contentment. Focusing on the goodness of everything God has given us. And just letting the manure be what it is, okay? And even seeing the goodness in that because it's all for our good. Would you stand and sing a closing hymn with us? Ashley's going to lead us.
1: paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. a crimson stain he washed it white as snow Jesus paid it all
0: Lord Jesus, thank you for eternal life that you gave all for me, that I will inherit all from you and will live eternally with you in your glory and sharing that glory with you and on that new creation. We are so thankful for all you've done. It is so easy, Lord, for us to get focused on the things in our life that aren't going well or the things that accompany the blessings. Help us, Lord, to focus, to honor you by trusting you and being content with our lives and content with the things that you are doing in our lives through everything we want to be that kind of people and we pray in your name Lord Jesus one who gave all amen so let's go and be God's people this week